Wow. Warm and sweet. Ooh, with a kick. Kind of burns all the way down, Doc. and welcome to the Feeling Your Oats podcast. Whether it's great lives or great tragedies, or just showing up for the adventure, history that is told without being felt is minimized. Like food that is eaten without being tasted. What's the point? Tell the stories, feel the people, learn the lessons. Be a better you because of them. Don't keep reinventing the wheel. Will you get some of the story wrong? Yes! Will the size of the fish increase each time? Probably. Will there be a different perspective? Of course. So what? When we stand on the shoulders of the past, we can see with greater clarity into our future. True stories well told can inspire, caution, entertain, and instruct. If you judge the yesterdays of history by today's standards, then you deserve the same. If you erase it, you will repeat it. Please come on in and make yourself at home. Say, while you're here... Can I get you something to think today? Did you know that Texas shared a border with Oregon? Well, in July of 1847, it most certainly did. Also in 1847, the former governor of Tennessee, James Knox Polk, was serving as the president of the 29 United States. In the latter part of July 1847, the first of many organized groups of Christian outcasts fleeing from a country who wouldn't protect them began arriving in the valley of the Great Salt Lake. Over 1,600 exiled pioneers from the Church of Jesus Christ traveled across the unorganized territories expanding from the area known as the Louisiana Purchase. This wild country lay between Missouri and the northern part of what was then in the Centralist Republic of Mexico. 51-year-old Dr. Pretty Meeks and his wife Sarah Mihiran, age 44, with three of their children, had been traveling with the Jedediah M. Grant and Joseph B. Noble Company and arrived in the Valley of the Great Salt Lake ahead of them on Friday, October 1st of that same year, 1847. In that year, and just over 2,000 miles southeast into the heart of Central America, an army of 10,000 soldiers under General Winfield Scott, old fuss and feathers, were marching towards the inevitable capture of Mexico City, and would soon be raising the 29-star American flag over the Hall of Montezuma, concluding a devastating advance that began with an amphibious landing at Veracruz six months earlier. This invasion eventually resulted in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in February 1848. This treaty surrendered approximately one-third of the landmass that Mexico claimed to the United States. This encompassed the valley of the Great Salt Lake and soon became the territory of Utah. So Dr. Meeks and his peculiar people were now back under the jurisdiction of the U.S. government. (laughs) 
By harvest time in the fall of 1850, the population in the valley of the Great Salt Lake had been reinforced for three years by the arrival of Mormon immigration from abroad and the east. Also, three years of relatively good crops had ensured food for everyone. The tales of weed soup and the near starvation were finally behind them. The gold diggers coming through the valley had enriched the saints with eastern products that had previously not been available to them. New settlements were established in and around the valley. Bountiful, Provo, and Manti were some of the earliest ones. Exploration had pinpointed a corridor of sites suitable for farming communities. By the time they had been in the west for five years, and at the end of 1852, the Mormons had founded over 70 colonies, ranging from San Bernardino in the south to Ogden in the north. Hello, Orson. How's your family? Uh, morning, Doc Morse. They're well, I tell you. Thanks to them Society of Health courses you've been teaching us. Well, I like to hear that, Orson. That was all Dr. Meeks's idea. Moments of overwhelming need cause a man to concoct some inspiration, I guess. You know, the name of it all was from Willard Richards. Uh, Apostle Richards? Yeah. My, Doc. That's coming from pretty high up the food chain. <laughs> it sure is, Orson. I wish you could have been there when Phineas Richards Meeks and I met with him. We had a good deal of chat on the subject. There was a spirit of union in our midst that caused the most precious atmosphere. Well, so much so that Willard declared that the principles we were about to publish to the world would never die out or cease until it revolutionized the earth. Gosh, Doc. I know. We were all deeply impacted by that moment. Felt like it transcended all of us. Now about this society, Dr. Pretty Meeks wrote in his journal, They saw fit to appoint me president of the institution. The organization was later called the Council of Health. All things were conducted by a majority. They chose Dr. Morse and I to scour the canyons every Wednesday in search of roots and herbs that we presented to the council. Meetings were held on Thursdays. It was a speedy way to become acquainted with the flora of the country and the virtues and properties of each plant, for which Dr. Morse was the most famous. The masses of people then began to profit by it because of the knowledge they had gained to know what to do. As the prejudice of some people always goes in advance of every good work, it was so in this case. A certain woman made light of the meeting to another woman. So the second woman would not go to the meeting because the first woman spoke light of it. Well, one of her children took sick and died after that. She thought she should go to the Council of Health and see and hear for herself. And while there, the case of her child was so plainly illustrated and how to cure such cases, she remembered it. And sometime after that, she had another child taken with the same complaint the first child died with. And she cured it by following the direction she heard in the Council of Health. The institution was so beneficial and so successful that 
the public began to be universally interested in it. Oh, oh, Dr. Cannon, poison doctor, and poison against the Mormons, too, could get but little to do among the sick. He said that if we would give him all the surgery to do, he would quit doctrine. <laughs> so we did, and he joined the Council of Health and proved a great benefit to us, being a man of much experience and intelligence. I learned a considerable amount by helping him to dissect the dead. In the first issue of the first volume of the Deseret News, dated June 15, 1850, there appeared an article that announced the organization. Mr. Editor, we would inform our friends and fellow citizens that a council of health was formed in this city about 16 months ago. By and with the advice of the authorities of the church, which is attended one in two weeks at the house of Dr. W. Richards, the principles on which we shall act we believe to be benevolent. We intend to allow our selfishness to govern us no further than we deem necessary to enable us to accomplish the greatest good. We greatly desire the means of using our time and talents to the best advantage. Further than this, we are not anxious. That we may fail to convince some of the botanic practice, we feel confident that our exertions under this head will shake the faith of many in the proprietary of swallowing, as they have long done with implicit confidence, the most deleterious drugs under the sole authority and responsibility of technicality. We intend to lay before the council from time to time such medicinal plants as shall come to our knowledge for their approval or refusal, as we shall find in this vicinity, believing in the goodness of the Creator that He has placed in most lands medicinal plants for the cure of all diseases inclement to that climate, and especially so in relation to that in which we live. And it is better to cultivate our own resources than to send to distant lands for such as may be obtained in our vicinity by a little exertion and experience. Yours with esteem, William A. Morse. Good morning, Brother Adams. What can I get for you today? Oh, John, just call me Orson. I need a hammer, a grub hoe, a spiral auger, and some nails. Gosh, Orson, anything but metal tools. Those are sure hard to come by. Them folks in the East just won't ship them our way. Well, that's most unfortunate, John. I guess I'll just take a jar of sorghum sweet, some of them dried apricots, and a newspaper. Sure thing, Orson. Well, that'll be 12 cents. The residents of the territory of Utah sought to be a self-reliant lot. They grew frustrated with relying on a nation who seemed so removed from them, and a government who they never could fully trust. Iron ore had been found in sufficient quantity 250 miles away 
in the area they called the Little Salt Lake Valley. This valley was located in the southern part of the territory and warranted consideration by the people to be getting a settlement there in anticipation of eventually establishing an iron foundry. Of all the products difficult to obtain from the east, metal tools and equipment were the hardest. It was decided that a colony would be established in the area now known as the Parowan Valley. The initial plan was to send a company of at least 50 men of a variety of occupations in early September of 1850. Once there, they were to speedily make on-site preparations for the founding of a settlement the coming year, at which time their own families and others would immigrate to the area. Unfortunately, this plan did not excite the imagination. For very few volunteered. The people of the Church of Jesus Christ had been driven from their homes a half dozen times by enemies bent on mayhem and murder. Finally, at great sacrifice, they had walked 1,000 miles to safety where they had even begun to prosper in that desert place. They were comfortable where they were. Their homes were comfortable. Food was sufficient and all seemed well for them. However, Greater things were in store for Pretty and his fellow Christians. Again and again, they would be called upon to settle new communities. This was their heritage. This was their destiny. (laughs) Brethren of the Great Salt Lake City, a colony is wanted at Little Salt Lake this fall. That 100 or more good, effective men with teams and wagons provisions and clothing for one year, seed, grain in abundance, and tools and all their variety for a new colony are wanted to start from this place immediately. Farmers, blacksmiths, carpenters, joiners, millwrights, bloomers, molders, smelters, stonecutters, bricklayers, stonemasons, one shoemaker, one tailor in a variety of occupations who have the means are requested to give their names in writing together with their occupation, residence, strength of team, wagons, grain, tools for an outfit without delay and without further notice to Thomas Bullock or leave the same at the post office directed to Willard Richards. On April 22, 1851, a large company of leaders and travelers left the valley of the Great Salt Lake heading south. Their mission was to observe the country, visit the various settlements, and transact business pertaining to the church. Traveling with them was the Meeks family and several others accompanying the group for the purpose of strengthening the iron mission. The group of families arrived at a location called Center Creek on May 8th. The newcomers were delighted to observe the considerable progress the first settlers had made on the new community. They had located and laid out a fort, divided it into lots, fixed a road four rods wide between the fort and the public corral, laid the foundation for a 22 by 45 foot council house, moved from the old campground to the location of the fort, sown 400 acres into wheat, and surveyed an additional 1,600 acres, and erected a bowery. Church meetings were being held regularly every Sunday. Fences were being erected, and preparations for bringing water to the land were progressing. All in all, everything had gone well. The health of the people was good. 
Three babies had been born, and the settlers had suffered no harm from the Indians, who in fact had been most friendly. Ed? Ed? President Young is almost here. Are you ready with that cannon? Sure thing, Samuel. I got it loaded double, <laughs> so your Hamilton cousins in Northern Ireland will hear it. Edward Dalton, what shenanigans have you concocted now? Are you a scuttered salty devil? In the name of St. Patrick, you are the craziest brother-in-law a lad could ever fear. If you spoke Brigham's horse, we will never hear the end of it. They'll blister us so bad, we won't be able to sit on the jacks. <laughs> That's a risk I'm willing for you to take. <laughs> I'll have none of your wee lunacy, Edward. Too late, my brother from another mother. <laughs> you might want to cover your ears. There was an old legend telling how a young Indian princess was drawn into the salty water of the Little Salt Lake Valley and was never seen again. When Brigham Young heard that story, he made the decision to change the name from Center Creek to Powruan, which is Paiute for evil water, which honestly is how the water in that Little Salt Lake tasted. The spelling of these new southernmost communities later became Englishized to Paraguna, and Parowan, Utah. In 1857, the culmination of disagreements with the territorial governor of Utah caused the U.S. government to take issue with the citizens of Utah and surrounding states for practicing polygamy, or as the Mormons called it, plural marriage. This ruckus over plural marriage has lasted for over 100 years. In fact, when Utah sent Mormon Reed Smoot to the U.S. Senate, it prompted a series of hearings to decide whether a Mormon should even be permitted to serve in the chamber. The trial had nothing to do with Smoot's qualifications and everything to do with his strange-seeming faith, in particular its association with polygamy. Although the practice had been dissolved decades earlier, it is the Mormon church that we intend to investigate, thundered Senator Julius Burroughs. And we are going to see that these men obey the law. After three years, 100 witnesses, and 3,500 pages of testimony, Smoot finally prevailed. A pivotal point in the debate came from the comments of a Pennsylvania senator, Penrose. I think the Senate should prefer a polygamist who doesn't polyg to a monogamist who doesn't monog. Now that veiled threat of outing the non-monogers pretty much ended the fight. For Penrose's time in history, it was a statement of remarkable tolerance. In May of 1857, President Buchanan sent Johnston's army marching towards Utah. The residents of Utah predominantly members of the Church of Jesus Christ, having the threat of another state-sanctioned extermination order, as had happened in Missouri, or a mob expulsion as they'd lastly survived in Illinois, 
Their righteous indignation was rightfully inflamed as they felt backed against a wall in their new wilderness territory home. Now fearful that the large U.S. military force had been sent to annihilate them, and having faced persecution in other areas, they made preparations for defense. The Mormons manufactured or repaired firearms, turned Siths into bayonets, and burnished and sharpened long unused sabers. They would not run again, and in the succeeding months, they made that known. The tensions were at an all-time high from May 1857 to July of 1858. The residents of Utah Territory had no reason to trust the government, who had abandoned them so many times before. Historian William P. McKinnon concludes that even with no notable military battles, there were near 150 non-military casualties as a direct result of the year-long Utah War. Meanwhile, back in Parowan, Mary Jane had her first baby, a son, born on December 13, 1857, just a year and a month after she married Dr. Pretty Meeks. Oh, Mary, he's a fine, healthy boy. And just as I promised Joseph, after he and Hiram laid hands on me in Nauvoo, we will name him Joseph. Joseph Meeks. Oh, the promises made to me about my continued posterity are certainly being fulfilled through you, my dear. My dear Mary Jane. It was proving to be a busy and eventful winter of 1857. Just a couple weeks later, on December 31st, 1857, Margaret Jane Meeks, who was Pretty and Sarah's surviving daughter, well, she married Irish-born Samuel Hamilton. In the end, this would not be the happiest of marriages, but there were wonderful children born to them. Burr! Oh, burr! That was quite a festive wedding party, Mary Jane. I'm glad you were comfortable and warm here. How is our baby Joseph? Oh, is he feeding okay? Oh, Mary, you are doing a fine job with him. I hope Lucy has been some help. After the little talk I had with her, any of the rest of us can wash diapers and care for Joseph aside from feeding him. You need to stay off your feet for a while. Please, dear. Oh, it's miserable weather. Colder than a well digger's belt buckle out there, I suspect. I would sure hate to be stuck out in these blizzards and wind chills. At least the ones we've had recently. I'm looking for Dr. Meeks. That's right. I am he. How can I be of service to you? Teamster McCann here uh, has some frozen feet. Please, gentlemen, bring him in out of the cold. Set him there. Let me have a look. Oh, son, you've got a good amount of frostbite. Unless your mother was from Africa, I do believe these black feet of yours is not exactly your natural color. We'll cover the cost of the amputations, Dr. Meeks. Here's ten dollars to get you started. Amputation? Oh, yes. Amputation. 
We gotta get back to our unit just outside of town. We'll check back in a few days, if that's okay with you. Yes, yes, that'll be fine. I just gotta decide how to... I wonder. Not much of a life with two legs and no feet. Maybe we could... James, Doc. You can call me James. And, and yes, before I knew it, I, I just can't believe it happened to me. Here, so far from home. I'm on my way to California, Doc, so so I have to take a ship back to my home in the eastern states. Of course you are. And I totally understand that uprooted feeling. I, I know it ain't going to be easy, Doc, but I guess amputation is the only way to keep me alive. Well, of all the confounded infernal misfortune, a young lad like you having the feet cut right out from under you, it's just not right. Well, you ain't going anywheres for a bit. Let me do some thinking, while you let that fire warm up your outsides. If only I could get that fire into... Hold on a minute. Don't you go anywhere, James. I mean, I mean, not like you could. Now, where did I put that book? Aha! Here it is. New Guide to Health by Samuel Thompson. Now, what do I need? Warm water, cayenne pepper, that's it? Possibly a little honey to make it palatable. All right, Mr. McCann, drink this. You made me some tea? Is it loaded with so I don't feel the pain when you go to cutting? Well, yes and no. It is loaded, but I don't think you're gonna need any cutting done. I, I kinda like you at the height you currently are. Wouldn't want to take a couple feet off of that. <laughs> wow. Warm and sweet. Ooh, with a kick. Kind of burns all the way down, Doc. Good, good. That's the effect we want. Let me get you some food while that cayenne tea works its way into your blood. Oh, just the one dose, Doc? Oh, no. Oh, no. We'll give you some of that cayenne tea with every meal for a while. Just see what happens. Whatever you say, Doc. It can't be much worse than dying. I, I hope. I commenced by giving him rather small doses at first. About three times a day. It increased the warmth and power of action in the blood to such a degree that it gave him such pain and misery in his legs that he could not bear it. Oh, I, I can't handle the pain anymore, Doc. Maybe I just need to cut him off. Oh no, not now. This is the good part. I just lay here next to the fire. Yeah, yeah, on your back. There, put your feet up against the wall. You know, elevate them a little. See if that helps a bit. Ah, oh, that's much better and less throbbing. Well, James laid there on the floor with his feet up against the wall for three or four days. And then he could sit up in a chair. The frozen flesh would rot and rope down from his foot when it would be on his knee. Clear down to the floor. Just like buckwheat batter and the new flesh would form as fast as the dead flesh would get out of the way it's almost as if the new flesh was pushing the dead stuff out of the way exactly my thoughts as well James like it's making room for the new flesh that was all the medical treatment he had much to my astonishment and to everyone else that knew of the circumstances good morning James how was the walk? 
You've been gone for a bit. I thought maybe you'd been scalped or attacked by a jackalope. Well, it, it was a bit more than a walk, Dr. Meeks. It's been 16 days since you gave me that first drink of that cayenne tea. So I decided to just walk as far as I could. I made it to Red Creek and back. Really? That's near nine miles, son. I would have walked farther, but I didn't want to miss your biscuits and gravy for breakfast. Other than five toenails, I'm pretty near good as new. You sure are, James. Now get out of my territory and leave us polygamists alone. <laughs> Now the healing power of nature is in the blood, and to accelerate the blood is to accelerate the healing power of nature. And I am convinced that there is nothing will do this like cayenne pepper. You will find it applicable in all cases of sickness. Dr. Pretty Meeks Thank you for listening to the Feeling Your Oats podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Growing listeners will allow complete focus on content. Once again, I am just randomly being me. Until next time, remember, when your why is clear, your how is easy. And hey, we'll see you in the spring if the water's clear. Well, Dad blessed it. I sure enjoyed the visit today. If you gained something from it, be kind enough to follow us and leave a review. And do it right now. If you would, it'd sure be appreciated. Your comments have been so considerate and honestly left me blushing. And good night, those reviews make a big difference in the program's visibility. On the Apple platforms, you select the Go to Show option. And then click the circle plus sign at the top right to follow. Then scroll down below the episodes to leave some stars in a review. Them algorithms need all the help they can get so as I could disrupt more good folks like you. So I tell you what, if you got a friend or three that you just don't like very much, well, share this podcast with them and let us bug them for a while. And if you have comments or suggestions for future discussions, well, don't just keep them to yourself. We, we, we'd love to hear from you. You can DM us on our Instagrams at fyo.podcast. And thank you. Remember to download the Family Tree app and see how you are related to the people from today's episode. All those links will be included in the show notes. Sometimes it's important to look a gift horse in the mouth. Your gift is your ancestry. Your superpower is their family history stories that make you. Not a one of us crawled out from under a rock, regardless of what you've been told. You have 4,094 grandparents, over 12 generations, with thousands of love stories, battles, difficulties, sadness, happiness, and expressions of hope for the future that allows you to be here today. We are the culmination of so many things we did not choose. It was designed that way. So be gentle with yourself and others. 
Take the time to learn yourself through your family history stories. There are innumerable tributaries flowing into the life experience that deceptively seems to be your own, but it's not. So think about that as you row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Russell M. Nelson stated, When our hearts turn to our ancestors, something changes inside us. We feel part of something greater than ourselves. <laughs> I concur. Thank you for joining me on another unbelievably true adventure. Find your family history superpower and activate it. Until the next time, bye.